All right, so this is Access Reality with Ali Kadili. We're pleasure, uh, we're blessed here today to have Dr. Robert Zubrin, who's the president and founder of the Mars Society. He's also the president of uh, Pioneer Astronautics, which is an R&D aerospace engineering company <clears throat> in Colorado. Uh, Dr. Zubrin has a PhD in nuclear physics and um, was an engineer at uh, Lockheed Martin and has written many scientific publications. And his last book is The Case for Space. So welcome, Dr. Zubrin. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for inviting me. Perfect. So the, I guess the most obvious question is, why have we not uh, sent a human to the moon since 1969? Why have we failed to send a human to Mars so far? And the only place we seem to be able to send humans is in a space station in low Earth orbit. Well, um, we had a massive uh, failure of leadership in the United States during the Nixon administration. Um, you know, at the very time that the uh, Apollo astronauts were returning for the moon and they were riding in ticker tape parades, the Nixon administration was uh, scrapping the program. Uh, it was as if uh, Columbus had come back from the New World the first time and Ferdinand and Isabella had said, oh, so what, get lost. Um, that's basically what happened. Uh, NASA in 1969 did have plans to go further. They had plans to have a permanent moon base by the late 70s, the first human mission to Mars by 1981, a permanent Mars base by 1988. And if we had continued with that level of effort, which was the Apollo level of effort, probably the first uh, children on Mars would be graduating high school on Mars right about now. Um, and uh, but it didn't. It was the road not uh, taken. And uh, it was tragic, not only because that opportunity was lost, um, but because uh, in the ensuing period, the quality of the political class uh, in the United States, and I believe worldwide, uh, deteriorated uh, so that um, it never was capable of, of attempting such a thing again. That is, the people that got us to the moon were the same people or the younger brothers of the people that won World War II. Uh, you know, they knew how to do grand projects, Normandy landings, Adams for Peace, uh, you know, the interstate highway system. They knew how to pull together to do great projects. And, um, you know, and if you go into the House and the Senate, you will see uh, paintings and other small monuments to um, secondary statesmen of that time who are not well known to Americans today, but nevertheless played uh, key roles in making Apollo happen. It wasn't just Kennedy. There was a, a, a significant secondary cast. And, um, but if you look at the political class now, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, compare Trump to John F. Kennedy. Compare Boris Johnson to Winston Churchill. Compare Macron to Charles de Gaulle. You know, it, 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 this is, uh, these are Lilliputians. Uh, and uh, so they have not been capable of resuming that. And okay, during the 70s and 80s, it was still possible, and most people, including me, hoped that this was a temporary aberration, that NASA would become NASA again, uh, the Apollo NASA, that this would happen. Um, but by the 90s, uh, uh, a number of people uh, became increasingly disillusioned with this hope, although I was not one of them. I still continue to hope. But many people um, began to say, no, there has to be another way to do this, the entrepreneurial way. And, uh, and so there were a number of entrepreneurial space companies started in the 90s. Um, they all failed either because they were undercapitalized or because uh, the leaders were, uh, who did have money in some cases, did, were insufficiently committed. But finally, in the first decade of the 21st century, we finally had a company, SpaceX, started by someone who both had the capital and the commitment. And, um, and what Musk has done is proven that it is possible for a well-led entrepreneurial organization uh, to do things that were previously thought that only the governments of major powers could do. 
and not only that, do them in one-third the time, at one-tenth the cost, and even do things that those organizations had deemed impossible altogether, such as having reusable launch vehicles. So precisely because of this failure on the part of the old guard, uh, a new force has moved into the vacuum. And, uh, and I think this is the primary hope for the future. Okay, so you said NASA had plans. Um, is the problem here the fact that NASA is an organization run by the government and is subject to the political will of transitory governments that come and go and budgetary restraints and all the politics and corruptions that come with that rather than pure focus on the scientific mission itself or grand goals? Well, the, I mean, certainly the, the fact that NASA is a government organization uh, it defines certain strengths and weaknesses uh, that NASA has. Um, and uh, now it is possible for government organizations to succeed at doing things um, when they are well-led, well-focused, have very clear goals, um, when they are purpose-driven. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it is certainly possible for government-led organizations to become the playthings of political forces who simply want to uh, get this unlimited source of money that the government is, is putting on offer. And so you can have either purpose-driven programs like Apollo or vendor-driven programs like the current human spaceflight program. Now, parts of NASA remain mostly purpose-driven. Um, I would say that the NASA Science Directorate which does the robotic planetary missions and the space astronomy missions uh, is for the most part purpose-driven. Uh, you know, we didn't send rovers to Mars in order to give business to the airbag consortium. Um, you know, the, the, it was not a vendor-driven program. They wanted to do a certain kind of science mission on Mars and they wanted to do it uh, as efficiently as they could. And, and yes, of course, in the small there's still, you know, human nature and, and, and various forms of, of, of corruption. But, but in the large, uh, those programs are purpose-driven and their accomplishments are epic and, um, and they're, they're for the books. But the, the human spaceflight program since the end of Apollo has not been purpose-driven. Um, you know, it's been basic and without a purpose, it's just been regarded as a big pot of money um, and uh, the sharks are circling at it and taking out bites. Um, and uh, so, for instance, uh, in 1989, when uh, the first President Bush announced his space exploration initiative, Back to the Moon and on to Mars and this time to stay, uh, instead of adopting the most efficient program for getting back to the moon, and there were plenty of people in NASA in 1989 who had been part of Apollo and knew how to go to the moon. They had done it. Uh, they had all sorts of impositions put on them to do it in the most complex and expensive way possible. And so that they, they were left uh, just astonished. People actually saying, if we could put a man on the moon, why can't we put a man on the moon? Uh, and so is that because they had to cater to regional interests or political interests? Well, or? Uh, in that point, what happened was, uh, okay, the dominant programs in NASA in 1989-90 were the shuttle and space station programs. And so they insisted that the return of the moon be based on their programs. And you couldn't go back to the moon unless you use shuttles and shuttle-derived vehicles to do on-orbit assembly at a greatly expanded space station of a translunar spaceship. And it was so complicated that, I mean, look, 1989, we should have been able to get back to the moon by 1995. I mean, it only took eight years the first time and we were inventing everything as we went along. In 1989, we knew how to do everything. And, uh, and we also were a, a country with, um, you know, 50% larger population, double the GNP, uh, and, and frankly, much lower international commitments uh, to deal, you know, we were fighting the Vietnam War simultaneously with the Apollo program. And, and yet we couldn't do it because there are all these people saying, you can't do your program until you do my program. 
Now, there were people saying that during Apollo too, but they got pushed out of the way because NASA was purpose-driven. And there, there were people saying, you can't go to the moon until you build a space station. And the, the, the people though who were in charge of this, Apollo said, get lost, okay? Just get lost. And there were people saying, you can't do it until you have nuclear rockets. Apollo people said, get lost, okay? The people say, you have to have a Saturn IX. Get lost. We can do it with the Saturn IX. We don't need nuclear rockets. We don't need a space station. And here, compared to today, where they actually do have a space station, but since uh, it doesn't need a moon program to justify it, since it's already there, they, there are people in NASA say you can't go back to the moon unless you build another space station and orbit around the moon, which is like totally new. They, no one even thought of, of coming up with that excuse not to go to the moon during Apollo. Um, the, 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 that was my but, other... Yeah, sorry. That was my other question is there seems to be in their plans in recent years, like a fixation or a focus on um, space stations, whether it's around the Earth or on the moon. Is that just because it's a convenient way to justify adding all these components that satisfy, um, you know, all these other parties? It's a way to do additional tricks without learning new tricks. Okay. Um, yeah. Because and, what are the astronauts really doing on the space station? I mean, running experiments, measuring their radiation, running plant and animal experiments. And they're not really exploring, per se, are they? No. Uh, you know, if you had a Navy, it would be a reasonable thing to have a training ship that stays in the bay and you could put sailors out on it and they could learn the basics of how to run a ship without leaving the bay and going out onto the ocean. That might be a useful facility for a Navy to have, but it certainly wouldn't be the main attraction. Okay. The main why you have a Navy. Are the blue ocean ships that actually go out and do the mission. The space station is like a training ship for space exploration ships. It, 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 if you had a space exploration program, it'd be reasonable to have a space station to use as training and a testing facility, but to have it instead of a space exploration program is uh, absurd. Yeah, and there's always been the objection of naysayers in the general public who say, well, we would rather spend the money, we should rather spend the money on problems at home and things like that. More recently, this has been joined by the massive environmental movement uh, saying we should fix our problems here on Earth. And I think even Neil deGrasse Tyson recently said, um, if you have the technology to turn Mars into Earth, why not turn Earth back into Earth? Um, what do you, how do you answer that objection beyond kind of, well, exploring space will give us all these new technologies and innovations? Is there anything else you can say to them if they're not excited by the prospect of going well, into space and exploring other worlds? The fact uh, that uh, there are people hungry is no reason not to have seed corn. Um, the, the, you know, look, if, if we were spending 50% of our resources on space exploration, I think these people would have a very good point. Okay, if we were spending 10% of our resources on, on space exploration, I think they'd have a point. Okay, but uh, we are spending half of 1% of the federal budget, which itself is only 10% of the G, uh, no, excuse me, it's about 20% of, of the GDP. So we're spending 0.1% of our resources on space exploration. And so if you had no space exploration whatsoever, it would not make a material difference to solving any of these uh, other problems which people are, are concerned with. And I think in fact, uh, it would harm them uh, because first of all, uh, obviously space technology is essential for environmental monitoring, uh, for uh, weather, predictions and so forth, which has a direct effect on crop yields and, uh, the, you know, feeding people. Um, and so these technologies, not just spin-off technologies into the general economy, but even space technologies themselves have had a massive influence on um, solving the everyday problems of humankind on Earth. But, but beyond that, um, the intellectual capital that has been created because of the inspiration of 
the space program on youth, of, of, of making it clear that science is the great adventure of our time. And youth loves adventure, and that, that's the spirit of youth itself. And uh, we have uh, created massive amounts of intellectual capital, a small fraction of which uh, has actually gone into the space program, but the, the, the vast majority have gone into every field uh, ranging from computers to biotechnology and, um, and, and manufacturing and every damn thing and, uh, uh, and, and has greatly advanced life on earth. There, there's no program I can think of that has done more per dollar spent to advance life on earth than the space program. Yeah. I don't think people realize even satellite technologies, cell phones, GPS or daily lives are kind of inspired by that. Correct. Yeah. Um, now, in the let's say in the 1980s, early 1990s, did you ever imagine that the biggest jump or leap forward or way out of this stagnation is private companies? Well, uh, I, I didn't, in, not in the 70s or 80s. Now, in the 90s, began to think about it. And in fact, I myself was involved with one startup uh, called Pioneer Rocket Plane. Um, which uh, it made some progress. It, it, it raised some money. It lasted for about 10 years. It ultimately ran out of luck around 2008 or so and closed its doors. Um, but it was one of the raft of, of entrepreneurial startups of the, of the mid-90s. Uh, in a way, that was a false dawn because many of us at that time um, – we're trying to make a business case out of uh, Bill Gates had announced he was going to launch a thousand satellites in a constellation called Teledesic and the existing launchers couldn't possibly launch it. And, and so there was room for new launchers, but um, ultimately he decided not to do it. Uh, however, now um, things like that, in fact, bigger than that, I mean, Musk's Starlink constellation is bigger than the Teledesic thing and they are really launching it. Um, and, um, uh, so, um, but also, I mean, look, the, the general progress of humanity is working in our favor. Um, let me just give you an example. If you go back a hundred years, there were maybe 10 people in the United States as wealthy as Musk. Um, Rockefeller, Morgan, Harriman, you know, you could name them, okay? I mean, it really was a very small group. Now there are thousands. Okay. And with that, um, there's just an increased probability that you'll get some of them are interested in doing this. Okay. You know, okay. Andrew Carnegie did a lot for the arts. Okay. And so it was fortunate for the arts that you had one of that cast was interested in promoting them and, and so forth. But here now you have thousands of these people and we've got a couple of them anyway, uh, Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, Richard Branson, um, you know, and, 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 and Paul Allen, of course, is now deceased, but um, who say, this is something I want to do. And just because there's so many more of them, uh, the probabilities that such people will exist are, well, they're sufficiently high that they do exist. And, uh, and so this is a, of great um, utility. Now, of course, um, Musk's example of the possibilities of entrepreneurial space has unleashed additional forces besides these uh, billionaires. Uh, you know, Rocket Lab was founded by working engineers with no more personal resources than the average middle-class person, but they've managed to mobilize hundreds of millions of dollars of investment money. And, and now, and, and we, and they've reached orbit. And, Is that happening in New Zealand? Is yes, the, correct. Yeah. And, and, and that's another interting fact about the entrepreneurial space is that it doesn't require a national consensus. There is no national consensus in New Zealand that New Zealand should have a space program. So it does not, but you don't need it national consensus for an entrepreneurial thing. You just need some people willing to do it and some people willing to back it. And, and so New Zealand has reached orbit, even though they don't have an, a, a, a space program. So do you think this um, trend continues and it 
becomes a completely privatized domain or what's the role of the government now then? Well, uh, I think it will become a substantially privatized domain, not completely. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, there is a role for government in this. There, there, I mean, because look, there's all sorts of things that need to be done in space that don't have a commercial payoff. Um, space exploration, astronomy, okay. Now, humans to Mars, uh, I believe, you know, here's how I see this thing coming down. Uh, NASA's mucking around right now. Uh, and uh, I do not believe they will make it to the moon by 2024 with their current program. I think it's too disorganized and unfocused and and, and there's any- that, That's of, what the Trump administration announced, right? Is by yeah, the end yeah. of 2024. It's, it, yeah. it's not happening. Anybody who is putting a lunar orbiting space station in the way of landing on the moon is not serious about going to the moon. But the, uh, but here's the thing. Uh, and, and the return to the moon is insufficiently inspiring goal to support mobilizing national consensus in any case. Is that why but, you call your works uh, Moon Direct, Mars Direct, meaning go there directly, don't have a stepping stone of a space station around it? Well, that's one reason. I'll come back to that, but let me finish the point that I'm making. Um, SpaceX is pushing ahead on Starship. Um, you know, Musk said last October he's going to have it flying to orbit by April. Well, it's April and it's not flying to orbit. And I said at that time, now, not six months, but two years, yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, think of uh, the fall of 2021, then reaching orbit, or early 2022. Uh, I think they'll do it. They're, they're pushed, they are quite committed. It's just things are harder than an optimist might like. But the, but think about this. I think it is extremely probable that starships will be flying regularly to Earth orbit by 2024. And uh, so we're gonna have a new president in 2024. And if starships are flying to orbit, a fully reusable launch vehicle with Saturn V class capabilities uh, in 2024, he or she is gonna to look to their advisors and say, look at this, look, this is incredible. Tell me with this, could I have people on Mars by the end of my second term? And the answer is going to be yes. Well, is it going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars? No. Tens of billions of dollars? Maybe $10 billion. Oh, in that case, let's do it. What are we waiting for? So in other words, Musk, by making this thing practical, is going to make it sellable. And so you will have a public-private partnership. And SpaceX won't have to develop every damn little thing for the mission. You know, we need a space nuclear reactor on the surface of Mars to give us reliable power. And that's best done by the government because the materials needed to build it um, are very tightly controlled and, um, you know, bomb grade uranium. Um, and so, uh, you know, so there's a, definitely a role here in, for the government. Uh, and, but the private enterprise by developing these much more cost effective uh, launch vehicles and, and then other space transportation systems and other technologies is going to make the whole thing much cheaper um, with much shorter schedules. Because once again, no administration wants to undertake something that's not going to be done for 30 years. Where's the payoff? It's got to be done within eight. Okay, the key to the success of Apollo was we're going to do it this decade. If John F. Kennedy in 1961 had said, I want to have people on the moon by the year 2000, uh, which many people then might have thought was a much more realistic timeline. In fact, I have a copy of Popular Science in my office from 1958, which talks about how we will reach the moon by the year 2000. Uh, okay, we never would have made it to the moon at all. And space historians today would be going around saying, ah, yes, this idea that somebody had back in 1961 about going to the moon, obviously we all know it never really could have happened. No, you can't make it to the moon in 30 years. You can't make it in 20 years. You have to do it in 10 years or less. Or, or the conditions that allowed you to start the program will not persist long enough for you to do it. And the same is true with Mars. So we're going to have humans to Mars. And I believe we're going to have humans on Mars before the end of the 2020s. Uh, and uh, because SpaceX is going to make it possible. And once it's clear enough that it's possible, then the political leadership will sign up to do their part. Yeah. And um, 
it, am I correct in saying that Elon Musk read your book, uh, The Case for Mars, and met with you before they went on and developed um, all their major technological breakthroughs in space? Yes, it's true. Um, How did the, that conversation uh, go? Well, uh, I'll tell you the full story. Uh, and a lot of it's in my new book, The Case for Space. I tell people this story. Um, Mars Society had a uh, fundraiser in the Bay Area in uh, 2001. And uh, it was $500 a plate. And uh, we got this donate. Uh, uh, someone sent in for a ticket $5,000. Okay. I said it was $500 a plate. And somebody sent in a check for $5,000. Whoa, what's this? And uh, Elon Musk, who is that? Uh, never heard of him. Uh, and uh, well, uh, we did a little internet search and discovered, oh, he's the head of PayPal. Okay, well, we had heard of PayPal because there were these irritating people that wanted to pay their dues with PayPal instead of using credit cards or checks like normal people. Yeah. Um, but under the circumstances, we put that grievance aside and um, I met with him for like a two hour cup of coffee before the fundraiser and then afterwards he came to Denver and visited me at my place. Uh, I have a little R&D company here. And uh, he gave 100,000 and he joined our board. And uh, so- the Mars for, Society. Yes, or joined the board of the Mars Society. And his money helped uh, create the Mars Desert Research Station. Uh, the, um, and the subsequent donation helped create the observatory at the Mars Desert Research Station. But, after being a member of our board for a while, at a certain point, he said to me, look, you know, I'm not the kind of person that wants to be part of somebody else's deal. I have to lead my own initiative. And furthermore, right now, I'm wondering about what I should do with the rest of my life. Because I already have more money than I could possibly spend on myself or anything. And, uh, you know, I want to do something important, really important with the rest of my life. I want to do something that's going to matter. And at that point, he was debating between two ways to commit himself. One was humans to Mars. Okay, because yes, he had read the case for Mars. That's why he came to our fundraiser and all that. Um, uh, so one was humans to Mars and the other was solar energy. And uh, I argued very forcefully for Mars because I, I told him, look, you know, Elon, uh, the business case for solar energy is obvious. If anybody has any technology that can make it cheaper than fossil fuels, it's going to happen. Okay. You know, in other words, or, or, or any, any form of innovation, whether on the technical or business front that will make solar energy more marketable, there are investors that will support that. So if it can be done, it will be done. And it doesn't require anyone with a particularly uh, unique level of vision to make that happen. It will happen simply due to market forces. Um, on the other hand, the business case for humans to Mars is far from obvious, you know, and uh, it, it will really take someone of exceptional vision to make that happen because you can't go to Wall Street and get money for that. And um, so in the end, he decided to do both and the electric car company too. Um, and uh, and then he, he started the SpaceX. Now, um, so he's a risk taker. Now, there, now, yeah, now there's a number of interesting things about Musk that are worth talking about. Because there had been a couple of other zillionaires before him that had been taken with the vision of the opening the space frontier. Uh, there was a Beale, there was a Walt Anderson. Um, of course, there was also uh, Jeff Bezos. There was some guy who was in the video game business. So anyway, uh, but the, the zillionaires of the 90s who tried their hand at this, what they did was they took, you know, $50 million, $100 million, whatever uh, play money they had around, and they backed some visionary engineers to try to make this happen. And when it turned out to be harder than what they thought, they threw up their hands and they shut the companies down. And, you know, that was what a lot of people expected to happen with SpaceX as well. Um, and, um, but Musk did not do that. First of all, one thing he did that was very different from his predecessors was he actually learned rocketry. Uh, 
you know, when I met him in 2001, it was obviously very intelligent. He obviously had a good scientific background in broad terms, but he knew nothing about rockets or space technology. And uh, when I met him in 2004 at his first factory, he knew a lot about rocketry. Um, he had cracked the books. He, you know, he hadn't just thrown some play money at this. He had put his full heart and mind and, and, and talent into this and, and, and to really learning it and doing it. Now, in 2004, he's, he learned something about rocketry, but he hadn't learned some hard lessons yet because he was still very naive. Um, I told him at that point, as they were getting close to being able to launch the first Falcon 1, I said, look, you need to expect your first couple of launches to fail. And he said, why? What's wrong with my design? Show me why this is going to fail. And I said, I don't know what's wrong with your design. I just know that these things are very complicated and you're probably you're going to fail the first couple of times and you got to be prepared for that. Well, 2007, I visited him again. And, uh, and this, I think he was by now at the second factory. And in any case, by then the first two launches had failed. And the, um, and at this point, so he had been humbled by that. And, um, and it's pretty hard to humble Elon Musk. But the, uh, but he said to me, um, I'm good for one more try. If this fails, I'm out. Well, they tried a third time and it did fail, but he still didn't quit. And it was on the fourth time that they succeeded. And that is what made the difference. The full not only mental, but moral commitment to doing this, which really distinguished him from, from these others, uh, you know, and uh, so he did it and, and they've kept going. And, and, you know, this business with landing the Falcon nines, they failed the first five times, but eventually they succeeded. And that, that's what it takes. See, this guy has what it takes. Um, now it's tough for a private company to do, right? Because you're looking at, Oh lost. yeah. Now, Right. Now, here's another thing about Musk. Um, so Musk is tough. Okay, that's very important. Um, now, another thing is um, you know, the word genius is frequently associated with Musk, but the word wisdom generally is not. Uh, and and, and I, I get that because some of the things he does are pretty silly, okay? And especially on Twitter. But the, um, and it could get him into trouble. But there is one respect in which he shows extraordinary wisdom. And in a way that, for instance, Jeff Bezos, who on the surface is a much more stable kind of person, you know, uh, much more normal uh, kind of person, uh, does not show. Uh, and that is Musk understands that he has limited time. And most people, especially people his age, this guy's like 49 years old, do not understand that they have limited time. Okay. And so uh, he pushes. Bezos apparently thinks he has unlimited time. He has unlimited money. He's not going to run out of money, but we all run out of time. And um, so this, you know, you know, I think it was Mark Twain, nothing so focuses the mind as the not mind is the knowledge that you'll be shot in the morning. Well, in one sense, we're all going to be shot in the morning, uh, but most of us don't know it and Musk knows it. And, um, and so he's, he's driven. Now, a few other things I could say about Musk based on my personal and um, Musk is not nice. Yep. Okay. Nevertheless, Musk is a profoundly humanistic, not in the sense of being kind to other people, but in the sense of his basic commitments and criteria for action. Um, the, the Musk is not driven by money. Absolutely not. Uh, he, he likes money. Everybody likes money. And he certainly finds it useful and necessary. But it's not his driver. 
That's probably helped with him taking on the Mars part. Oh, yes, sure. If he was, you know, Musk, okay, first of all, my analysis of Musk is that he is a hero in the classical Greek sense. That is, he's driven by a desire for kleos, which is eternal glory for doing great deeds. Exactly. Yeah. Eternal glory for doing great deeds. Okay, so this is the motivation of Homer's heroes, and this is the motivation for Musk. He does not want cheap fame like Paris Hilton, okay? He wants fame for doing great deeds. And he doesn't want to just do great deeds and not get the credit. He wants the credit, mm-hmm. okay? You know, and, and so and sometimes this can be unattractive. For instance, how upset he got when he wasn't the guy who saved the boys in Thailand, okay? Yep. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the classic motivation of a hero. And, um, and it is the source of great deeds. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, so it's, he's a major asset for, for the human race on that basis. Um, Absolutely. Um, now, the, there's two main ideas that were described by yourself that SpaceX seems to have taken on, which is um, producing fuel on Mars, utilizing the CO2 in the atmosphere, rather than carrying it with you all the way, which is what other people right. were saying before which is an amazing idea because it helps you even, you know, do more things, explore Mars itself, go from there to other places. And the other idea was reducing the cost of a travel to what a, a, an average middle income, middle sized home would be. Um, right. Are these things you discussed directly with him or did, did they just glean it from your, did your work well, just I, become? I discussed it with him, but those are also right in the case for Mars. In fact, the number that must, used when he, when he gave his first presentation in 2016 in Guadalajara for the interplanetary transportation system, which is now known as Starship, for the uh, ticket price of an immigrant to Mars, $300,000, is exactly the number in the case for Mars. But, and, and of course, the propellant making scheme of making the methane oxygen on Mars is the basis of the Mars direct plan. And the architecture of direct to the surface, direct return, which is enabled uniquely by making propellant on Mars is the Mars direct plan and it is the basis of the Starship. Now there's also some major differences, okay? Uh, Musk takes the very same vehicle that he uses the booster to Earth orbit, refuels it on orbit and then sends it to Mars, okay? And then refuels it there to send it back. I use a heavy lift booster, and of course in Mars direct it was an expendable heavy lift booster, uh, but the obvious modification using a starship would be to use a starship as the reusable heavy lift booster. But in either case, stage off of it with a much smaller ship and send that to Mars. Now, the advantage of that, in my view, is uh, first of all, the amount of propellant you need to make on Mars to send an Earth return vehicle home it is an order of magnitude less than what is needed to send a starship back. And if I did send a starship to Mars, you know, you got 200 tons of habitation and keep it on Mars. Um, the, you've got an apartment building, you've landed on Mars. And so in my discussions with Musk in the more recent period, and I say, okay, look, you've got this architecture here. Why are you sending the starship all the way to Mars and back? Uh, it means you can't reuse it for three years. And if you just use it to go up and down to earth orbit, you could use it again the next week. Um, and you're having to produce a thousand tons of repellent on Mars to send home basically an empty starship. Um, instead, why not just stage off of it? And to the extent you need Earth return vehicles, they'd be one tenth the size. And that's why I argue for a mini starship. And he disagrees with that. He wants to do it all, the whole flight architecture with just one primary piece of, of flight hardware. Okay, so. I'm arguing for a certain degree of specialization here, a big starship for going to Earth orbit and a small starship for going to Mars. He wants to do it all with just the one. Okay, now, however, while I disagree with his conclusion here, I emphatically agree with his criteria, which is show me why I need it. Okay, in other words, this attitude 
that he has of show me why I need it uh, is exactly the opposite of the NASA attitude, which is, you know, uh, show me all the things I could possibly develop that might conceivably be useful before I actually do the mission. So, you know, NASA right now should be saying to the people advocating the lunar orbit space station, show me why I need it. Instead, they're saying, well, this sounds like a great thing to do before we actually go to the moon. And they've even now come up with a plan that involves a Mars orbiting space station before they go to Mars, you know, and we'll go to Deimos and go to Phobos. And, you know, and there's an infinite number of alternative things that might somehow be useful um, to do before you do what you want to do. Uh, but Musk's attitude is, show me why I need it. And I have a great deal of respect for that. So I just think that developing the second smaller starship in parallel with the first one would be a very good idea because it would reduce the uh, propellant making requirements on Mars by an order of magnitude. It would increase the utility of the starships themselves by uh, two orders of magnitude in terms of the rate of reuse. Um, and I just think it, it, it's a wise thing to do. But from his point of view, uh, it's, I want to do only develop one flight system, and therefore that's what I'm going to do. Now, we'll see if, if over time, these other problems that I have been looking at come into his view in a way that he um, puts greater weight on them, he might change his mind. Um, who knows? Musk, Musk's general uh, modus operandi is the correct one, which is you design the simplest approach you possibly can, and then you complicated it up just enough to make it actually work. That's the right approach to engineering. And that's what he does. Yeah. Um, now, do you think this disagreement in opinion could be that you're thinking of what's the most practical way to do things, to go back and forth from Mars, whereas he's thinking ahead of his vision of, oh, there's a million people there. So there's a starship that goes back and forth that can carry a lot of people. Well, the thing is this, you see, uh, I mean, I could see doing that in a certain way, uh, but you'd probably want to just send it, it, it. Okay. In his point of view, first of all, he wants to mass produce starships. Okay. So this is something he's not going to produce. He talked about a hundred going back and forth. Hundreds, thousands. Uh, and he wants to mass produce these things. And if you do mass produce them, you could send 10 to Mars one way for every one you send back. Because the star, I mean, look, it doesn't make sense to send a starship to Mars and then have it come back with maybe five people in it. Um, you know, when, in other words, if we're sending, if 90% of the people that go to Mars stay on Mars, then we should probably, 90% of the starships that go to Mars should stay on Mars and only 10% come back. Uh, that's, a, that's an alternative way to do it. But I guess the difference is this, is my thought, I mean, when I de developed Mars Direct, I uh, assumed that while I do want to evolve into colonization, that there'd be a first a period of human exploration before there was mass colonization. And so we're not going to send 100 people to Mars in the first crew. Sending five, six, maybe 10 Okay, but not a hundred. So the scale of the ships required for exploration is an order of magnitude smaller. And, and if you are doing this with an architecture of making the propellant on Mars, and you know, a lot of my own technical work, you know, as opposed to advocacy, has been um, focused on this issue of how can we make propellant on Mars? How can we minimize the power requirements? You know, fighting for every watt. And to make a, uh, a system that requires 10 times as much propellant as it, it actually should need to do the job defined for it, to me is, is unattractive. Um, so if you're focused first on an exploration period, then clearly Starship is suboptimal. If you, as not as a, it's, it's still great for Earth to orbit, but for interplanetary flight and return. In other words, it's way oversized for an Earth return vehicle for an exploration program. Uh, on the other hand, if you're thinking in terms strictly of colonization, then you say, why bother with the little ship? Um, 
Yeah. Now, um, history may actually look at you as the most significant influencer on the single most defining issue of the human race, which is transitioning from an Earth-only, Earth-dwelling-only civilization to a multi-planetary species. I know you've worked on this for decades, and you specifically for the, uh, you've advocated for the colonization of Mars, and you've had to watch U.S. government after U.S. government, NASA administrator after NASA administrator, just aimlessly squander money, resources, opportunities, and go little, go very little in that direction. So I have basically two questions. Is first, what, how do you get the drive to think that you as one single person can move the needle on such a massive issue when the organizations responsible seem to be paralyzed and mired in corruption and other considerations and unable to move? I mean, a lot of people have grand ideas, but then they'll say, oh, I'm just one person. This is too big. I'm not going to do anything about that. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, when you see that, you know, very little is happening uh, because of all the factors that we've already discussed, and it seems like you're banging your head against the wall, how do you get the drive and will to just keep going despite that? Um, and I think there's a profound lesson in there for a lot of people. Uh, and you eventually got your way. Along came SpaceX and listened to you and did something. Well, I believe in the power of ideas. You know, um, Victor Hugo said, um, nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. And that is true because the idea, if it has, if its time has come, and if there are people willing to serve as its messenger, has the capacity to recruit to its banners the forces necessary for its realization. And so this is what I've been engaged in doing. Um, and you know, okay, the Mars Society, we do basically three things. One is broad public outreach, spread the vision. The second is political work, defending various uh, programs like the Curiosity Rover, for example, which was in danger at a certain point, and we mobilized to make sure that it was not canceled. Uh, things like that. And then the third being our own projects, such as the Mars Desert Research Station, the Flashline Mars Arctic Station, the University Rover Challenge, this sort of thing. Now, the second two are concrete, and you can actually define and point to actual successes. Here is a program that we helped save. Here is a station that we actually built and a thousand people that served as crew members in it and so forth. Okay, those are concrete metrics. And, and, and that's really good. But I think that ultimately our most powerful uh, form of operation is the first, even though it's nebulous, even though you can't define it. It's spreading this idea and you can never tell where this idea is going to go. Okay, and yes, okay, it's Elon Musk. And there's a lot of people at SpaceX, by the way, who are either founding or at some point joined the Mars Society uh, or otherwise read the case for Mars. Uh, I mean, I was just at Boca Chica and I'm walking around and all sorts of people came up to me, oh, you're Robert Zubin, I just want you to know the reason why I'm here is I read the case for Mars. And, and there they are doing this. And those people at SpaceX, it's not just Musk, it's the team. And that team is as committed as he is. Um, he's done a good job of selecting for people that are committed as he is. People who are willing to work 18 hour days for 70% the pay that they could get at Boeing. Um, okay, But that's what's making the difference. That's what's making the difference. That's why these guys have reached orbit over 50 times in Blue Origin not once, um, despite the fact that Blue Origin has 10 times the money behind it as SpaceX. Um, that is the difference. Uh, so these ideas, and I think there will be others. I mean, I met people in China, because uh, I was in China a year ago, and, uh, and I met the, the people who were leading an entrepreneurial launch company there, uh, who are building a reusable uh, vehicle that, uh, yeah, okay, they're behind us. They, 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 in a couple of years, will have something equivalent to the Falcon, reusable Falcon 9. Uh, but even so, they're coming on, and 
they'd all read the case for Mars. Um, and, um, you know, so there's going to be a Chinese SpaceX, maybe more than one. Okay. Eventually, I think there'll be a Russian SpaceX. Uh, there, there will be uh, a bunch of these things and they will compete with each other. And the ones that succeed are going to be those that are led by people who are truly motivated, people who have the vision, whether they got it from me or somewhere else. Okay. You get it from watching the expanse. Okay. The, 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 but it's, it's this vision that is mobilizing this thing. And, and I think that this is why we're going to win. Oh. Now, um, speaking of private companies in other countries, the impression I get is, yes, that's happening in the U.S. And, but the New Zealand example notwithstanding, everywhere else in the world, it seems to be government-led agencies like in China, the European Space Agency, Russia. Um, do you think that's just how it's going to be or will... No, will... I think... No, I don't. Uh, the, the SpaceX example is too powerful. It's not going to be stopped. And even if Musk was to fail tomorrow, it's still not going to be stopped. Um, he's made the point. He's already won the war. In, in a certain sense. Uh, I mean, it would be a big setback if SpaceX failed, if they had a giant explosion and they were shut down, okay. Nevertheless, this has made the point. And there are, to my knowledge, five entrepreneurial space launch startups in China that have gotten serious investment funding. At the launch that I witnessed of one of them in China, the uh, CTO of Alibaba was present. Um, so, which is like, uh, you know, Amazon in, 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 in China. And so that is pretty clear. That's where the money was coming from. Um, and, and this is going to happen now, just like SpaceX had to encounter opposition from the old guard. Okay. I mean, look, uh, it wasn't just technical virtuosity, it was political virtuosity, you know, because they're people, they tried to shut Musk out from launching at Cape Canaveral. They tried to shut him out from launching at Vandenberg. The, you know, every dirty trick that could be done was done to try to stop him. But he was able to overcome that because even though there were allies of the old guard in both NASA and the Air Force, for example, there were also people saying, hey, uh, this could be a way to launch our satellites cheaper. And that means we could have more satellites and we want that. So we want this guy. Uh, and, um, and this is going to be true in China and even Russia as well. Um, and, and if for no other reason, by the way, because of the military importance of space. Okay. Space is the decisive military theater right it decisive. Um, that is, um, you know, nuclear weapons have neutralized each other. Okay. No one is willing to have a nuclear war. Uh, no one is willing to use nuclear weapons against another nuclear power for any other reason, but you are attacked by the other one and, and that you need to do it to survive. Okay. Cause it's just suicidal. Okay. So, space. This has been obscured, okay, because, for instance, the United States, in all the wars that it's had since it had serious space capabilities, um, they were just a frill, you know, like fighting Saddam Hussein. Yes, we had GPS-guided munitions, and that was great, but we would have beaten him without GPS-guided munitions. I mean, but think about if there was a major conventional conflict comparable to World War II, that is between major powers with comparable conventional forces, how decisive space superiority would be. I mean, imagine World War II, but with the Axis powers having reconnaissance satellites, which is only one of, of a number of important space capabilities today. Well, if the Japanese had had reconnaissance satellites, they would have won the battle of Midway. They would have known where our aircraft carriers were before we knew where theirs were, and they would have sunk them all with an initial strike, and then they would have proceeded to wipe out the cruisers without air cover, and, and that would have been that, and, and they would have won the Pacific War. And we would have been absolutely helpless against them. 
the U-boats would have won the Battle of the Atlantic. They would have known where every convoy was and so forth. Um, they would have defeated the Russians on the Eastern Front because they would have known where every major Russian tank formation out on the steppe was, you know, and, and they would have taken it out with the airplanes and, and, and so forth. So, so even a power as mismatched against the United States as Imperial Japan would have defeated the United States if they had had reconnaissance satellites. Well, today it is not just reconnaissance satellites. Uh, communications are based on satellites. Uh, the, the guiding of munitions to their targets is done with satellites. Um, so uh, if one side could get control of, of uh, have a monopoly of space assets where the other side had none, they would win even if in the forces on the ground round number 10 to one. And the, the, so what this means is that it's existential uh, for countries to have uh, effective space forces, whether they're called the Space Force or Air Force Space Commander, is irrelevant, okay? The, that's just the org chart, but the actual forces. And the, the so, you know, <laughs> public education, do you know which country first instituted universal public education? Hmm. Prussia. Russia. Prussia. Prussia, okay, Prussia. Prussia, the predecessor of Germany. Hmm. Okay, why? Because in the 19th century, they already realized that if you wanted to have good soldiers, they had to be able to read and write and be able to read maps and, 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 and equipment repair manuals and all this sort of thing. And, uh, and an illiterate army could not compete with such an army. And so it became the universal practice among all advanced countries to have universal mass public education. And even Russia was among the last of them, which is why they got smashed to pieces in World War I. But Bolsheviks said, we're gonna have mass public education in Russia. So military necessity made Russia literate. Military necessity is gonna to have to make Russia the kind of country that can have a SpaceX, which is going to mean a certain amount of rule by law. Because the reason why Russia doesn't have a SpaceX right now, despite the abundance of both capital and technical talent, is because someone started a SpaceX in Russia, they would have very good reason to fear that some oligarch with Kremlin connections would just steal it from them. Yeah. And uh, so... So they're going to have to sort that out if they're going to... They're going to have to, yeah. Yeah, reason is a stick, you know. Uh, military necessity is a stick that drives reform. And uh, so in order to compete in space, uh, every country is gonna have to uh, reform to a certain degree uh, to simply be competitive. So um, there we are. Um, hey, now, I got a dog here. Kepler, happy. He's called Kepler. Yes. Wow, that is interesting. <laughs> Do you have one called Cassini or? No, but I have one called Strelka. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, when, when you, just uh, one question about space here. You talked about it being the game changer in terms of military, in the military domain. Um, are we talking about just guidance? Or are we talking about actual weapons also for launching from space? Or is that, I mean, I know that's not allowed right now with the space treaty. I think for the coming period, uh, it, the, the key role of space is uh, re reconnaissance, uh, communications and control and uh, targeting. Uh, in other words, why put your weapon in space? Doesn't make sense. Uh, but GPS guided munitions launched from Earth, whether from missiles or aircraft or artillery or whatever, uh, you know, the, the, the GPS guidance makes them a hundred times more accurate so that a single piece of, 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 of ordnance has a hundred times the, the, the effectiveness. Um, so I, I don't think, now the, the only exception to this is um, things designed to either protect or destroy space assets themselves. Okay. Um, I believe the United States, for example, absolutely needs fighter satellites. Um, that is, Right now, both Russia and China are developing, have developed anti-satellites. 
okay? Um, and these are kind of like kamikaze satellites that come close to your uh, reconnaissance satellite then blow themselves up and wreck it, okay? Um, now, we could develop such things ourselves, uh, but actually that would be insufficient because the U.S. Uh, armed forces are far more dependent on space assets than those of uh, Russia or China. And if, if you had a situation where all space assets on all sides were destroyed, uh, the U.S. would be greatly the loser in, uh, of, of such a, a, an exchange. So what we need are things that can actually protect our satellites from ASATs. As you mentioned in the example with Iraq, that do they even know how to like they haven't do they know how to fight now without without space guidance or satellite guidance even? Well, I imagine they could figure out how to fight, but then the JDAMs, which are very accurate, become dumb bombs, and and their hit rate goes down by a couple of orders of magnitude. Um, the the but the the um, but as I said, we need fighter satellites that can protect our satellites from ASATs, and which could also be used to destroy enemy satellites too. But the, the equivalent is, is f fighter aircraft, okay? Um, fighter aircraft destroy enemy aircraft and they protect your own aircraft. And that's what we need. Great. Well, thank you very much. We're out of time and I didn't get to ask 25% uh, of the questions I had. So I hope we will be able to do this some other time soon. I hope so too. It was great. a great interview. Well, right. Thank you very much. It was an honor. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care.